Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. But first up on a star-studded, action-packed show, where better to start than with a man who is having the season of all seasons. He's become Mr. Saturday. Take a look at this. Harry Skelton for his brother Dan. Protectorat's going to land his big target here. Harry Skelton working with every sinew on Lamilo and just lifts the Coral Gold Cup. Slash down that is courageous and wins the beat there for the Skelton. She keeps on trying, and she's jumped superbly to win the Hampton Novices chase for Dan and Harry Skelton. Grey Dawning is running on courageously here. The Graham has taken over. Grey Dawning is going to win the Ballymore Levington. And Stuve Negra barely having to be shaken up to make a winning seasonal reappearance. It's Midnight River for the Skeletons. Midnight River from Stolen Silver. Midnight River for the Skeletons. Time flies. Last time he was in the Luck on Sunday studio, he hadn't been champion jockey yet and hadn't ridden all those big race winners, Harry Skelton. Things are going pretty well, I'd say. Yeah, for sure, Nick. Um, the last few months have been fantastic and we've had a bit of uh, luck and they've gone well. Yeah, that idea of you know, targeting these big, valuable Saturday prizes from a long, long, long way out, we always knew that you know, Dan and you would have shades of, shades of the nickels about you, but, but that is taking it to a whole new level, isn't it? Yeah, um, to be honest, you know, that turn of... We always had a lot of winners um, numerically, but the turn to get those better horses, um, yeah, it's just been unbelievable, those bigger races and... Um, a lot of that's down to Dan really is planning and you know it takes time though. Where do you think the turning point came? Could you identify a point where where you all sort of sat down and, and realised that a change of strategy was necessary or, or desirable not necessary but desirable? Um, yeah, I suppose necessary was good was a good way of putting it really it was necessary because that's where you want to go you know you've got to try and go to that next level but it wasn't really a case of just sitting down and suddenly it happened it's taken time um, but Dan's had that plan for a long time and, you know, now, you know, I think a, lo a lot of the owners were on board to try and, you know, go to that next level as well as a team. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, then suddenly you're bringing horses along through like Protector App, who wasn't easy to start with. Um, we always knew he was a good horse, but it took a bit of time to get him to where he is now. Um, and then, you know, luckily, I suppose um, you have your first grade one with it with Roxana. Um, and then things just started to filter to filter in then. Mm. And, but it takes a long time to produce those horses to get to where they are now. 
how much have you enjoyed the journey with with Dan? You know, the, the idea that you can actually work with a member of your family and make it make it productive is not something that comes easily to everybody. No, not at all. To be honest, we've me and Dan have been from as long as from the day I was born, we've always been together. Um, we, you know, from a very early age, he's just always been there. So, you know, he's been by my side. Um, so, what's the age difference between you two? Um, five years. Yeah. Um, my parents split up when when we when I was quite young, um, and to be honest, without him the whole way through my life, I would never have been where I was because um, we had a bit of a you know a rough patch when we were younger um, with family life, but he was just always there. He, he brought me through. Um, that's always been like that. It's never been any different, and I'd never want it to be any different going forward. Um, it's the two of us, and we're very lucky that Dad Dad has obviously put on that map. But to enjoy now what we're doing is yeah, it's fantastic, and there's definitely um, I wouldn't want it any other way. So he's always taking care of you. Yeah, without him, Nick, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what would have happened to be honest. Um, but um, we still have our arguments. But I suppose that's good and healthy. Well, it's very, it's very productive if you can if you can still argue and it can have a it can have a happy outcome at the end of it, especially with yeah. horses. Yeah, but it's like, you know, I think there's no, you know, I think a lot of people probably in 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 business have there's a sort of a certain barrier way you don't don't cross mm -hmm. that line. There is that, but at the end of the day, I can say anything to him, he can say anything to me. You might not want to hear it, um, but I think then that leaves no stone unturned going forward. You know, because then we can mm. between us we can we can get it right. You know, Fr from your perspective, obviously, as you say, you, you have total faith in him, and you completely carried along with what he was doing. Could you see quite a clear vision right from the outset when you you be began training? Um, well, when we started, we started with twelve horses, and the intention was just to train winners. That's mm. you know, it's about winning. I think with Dad coming through in his career, what he's done, it was always about winning. Um, so we just basically want to start out and yeah, just train winners. And I suppose that happened. It didn't happen straight away. Um, but then once the ball started rolling, you know, he's basically his drive and his, he's just, you know so forward thinking that he was never not going to let it happen mm. to go to the next, you know, to go to the next level as such. It just snowballed really. And, one minute we had 12, then we had 20, 40, and the next thing is <laughs> boxes going up everywhere and a lot of staff were needed and, yeah. I mean, d did everybody always feel in control of the situation or when things start to snowball like that? Yeah, sometimes I don't, I wonder whether it's in control, but he, he just, Dan's someone always, he wants more, you know? <laughs> like, it's just never enough. It's, he wants more, he wants, which I suppose is good, whereas, you know, we're all the same, but I think, well, I, we've, I don't know how long we've been there now, but the, the building work's never stopped. Like It's just like a building site. It has been for the last 15, 20 years, um, but that's the way they are. Are you contrasting personalities at all, or, or do you essentially share the same principles? Oh, no, I think there is differences between us, um, but I think we both want the same thing. Um, yeah, we want to be, be successful, we want to train winners and um, I've had my turn, I was champion jockey but well, there's now one, one more thing to get and you know, we're, we'll just keep working towards that now. Alright, a trainers championship. It's, I mean it's not completely impossible this season. 
though you do have a the formidable Nichols in your way. And yeah, I mean, you you guys, all people, know how hard that is. Very, um, and you know, Paul's a very very hard man to catch. He's you know his, his determination still now. He's been doing it all them years. He's just unbelievable. He just he, you know he he never switched off, and he is by far the, the hardest man to to beat. Um, but um, we'll give it a good go. So people talk about the Nichols blueprint, and you know Dan being the sort of natural heir or the natural successor or whatever. Are there are there very clear differences between the way they do things or the way they are? Um, I think obviously we you know when Dan was at university and then he went to Paul, so he's learned the racing, you know, everything he's learned has been down to Paul, really. Obviously, then, since he's gone on training himself, you, you know, you make mistakes and you learn from your own mm. mistakes, then you have to. But everything that we've learned has been, you know, from Paul, really. Um, I was at Richard Hannon's um, when I left school early, um, and my dad probably realised it was a waste of time sending me to school. I went to Rich Hannon's, then I went to Pools after a year. So I was there, I think, nine years. Dan was there, 15 or so. Um, so we've learned everything from him. Um, but no, Paul calls him mini-me, I think. was. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I can see the similarities between the way they train, the way they do things, and the way they're thinking. I think Paul would say, Paul, you know, Dan, Paul would know what Dan's thinking before he's thought himself. So I think... Um, you know, we're, we're always thinking probably the same. How crucial is it to you then that you're still the stable jockey to give Dan that first trainers championship? Oh yeah, yeah, crucial, yeah. <laughs> so you will go on um, and on and on until yeah. that happens. Yeah, for definite. Yeah, um, I just want to like I love riding, I love horses. Like we you know, I've never owned, known any different. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to ride just for as long as I enjoy it and as long as, I, as long as I can. Yeah. Uh, people have talked a lot about this celebration this season, but am I right in thinking that with Midnight River in particular, there was a, a real emotional significance to that for you? Yeah, there was. Um, the celebration really, to start with, wasn't really meant to be anything. It just, I think John Grossick got a picture of Ashtown Lad crossing the line. I had my arms out, I was going to give him a big pat, and the next thing is people thought it was something, and then I suppose some people enjoyed it, some people didn't. but. Midnight River, you see him there, like his his ears are pricked. He's <laughs> it's hard not to get attached to these horses. Um, I'm in the yard every day. We've had that horse since a three-year-old. Um, we broke him in. Um, we've we've produced him through his career. I rode him out a lot as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and produced him all the way through. And there's a lot of satisfaction mm. to get him to that point to win a race at Cheltenham. Okay, it's not the festival, but people might think. What on earth is he doing? It's only a handicap, but that's not it's what it's about. It's a pretty good race, to be fair. Yeah, it, I'd be pretty happy if I won one of those. Yeah, it doesn't uh, like to me. It's it's more than just a race, or yeah. you know the fact that I've had a lot to do with that horse, and you get emotionally attached to them. You probably shouldn't do, but um, he's definitely high up on my list as a favourite. You know. Welcome back, Cornelius Lysett joins me and uh, Harry Skelton here on The Luck on Sunday Sofa. Good, good to see you, Cornelius. Good morning, how are you? Very, very well. Where have you been this week? Nowhere, presumably no, nowhere. like everywhere else. Just getting a bit agitated this morning, actually, because uh, the first thing I saw this morning was a magpie, and I'm desperately superstitious. Uh, and it took me a long time to see the second magpie, but then I mm -hmm. went under a bridge and there was a train going over the top. So a chance to, to calm down All a right, bit. So, 
So one for sorrow, two for joy. What's the gap you're allowed between the two magpies for the second one to count? That's I always the think point. midday is midday is important. But I'm amazed. Well, so you're giving yourself like a four-hour window to see the second magpie. <laughs> four hours. Or, or, or is it two? Six hours. Or is it two? Or is it two individual magpies, both of whom are bringing us all bad luck? Well, uh, you know, it's it is ridiculous, isn't it? But the amount of times that I've gone to the races and actually back to winner, having seen two magpies on the way, is astonishing. So I, I believe in all that sort it's of. It's the it's the stuff. insight that you add to this program that, 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 is, that is why you're here. Is a big part of sport, isn't it? Massive part of sport. Are you superstitious? Uh, uh, not really, but I can relate to that a little bit. On the way to the start um, in the champion chase when Plitlog won, there was two magpies at the end of the at the end of the straight. Um, when I pulled up at the end of the uh, of the of the canter down, there was two magpies sat on uh, sat on the grass by the the first hurdle. So, so as they were there. Did you sort of? S yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. always. Yeah, always tip your cap to the magpie. Yeah. yeah I always say out loud, morning, yeah. morning, my lord. Yeah. Yeah, morning, yeah. Mr. Magpie, sir. That was yeah. My, yeah, that was my that was my mother's one. Uh, the, the the great superstition person in racing was Mark Tompkins, the former trainer. I remember he told me the one that sounded the most ridiculous of all. If you see a funeral cortege, you hold your collar until you see a dog. But the amount, of, yeah, which is that's utterly bizarre. That was a Mark Tompkins superstition, probably still is. Uh, and the amount of times I've been driving along holding my collar, and in the end, you just get uh, you get fed up with it. Good luck on Sunday at RacingTV.com if, uh, <laughs> if you want to send us your superstitions. I wonder if the Mullinses have many superstitions. I'm not sure they need them. They're going to have that many winners at the Cheltenham Festival anyway. They might have found another one at Navin yesterday, Harry, in another Simon Muneer, Isaac Swade-owned project called It's For Me. Did you see this? Yeah, I did actually watch it last night. Very, very impressive. Um, by a sire, actually, we haven't seen too much of. I was just saying Elwar, but... Um, He's no, never won a race. Who's just Saint Eloi? Yeah, never Did won. Never won. And he's only by ran, Sunday Saint, isn't he? Uh, yeah. Only ran half a dozen times or something. Yeah, um, yeah. They haven't had many runners, but it was very impressive. Now, I think we're going to look at it. At least I hope we are. Here we go. Well, to be honest, this doesn't tell you a massive amount, <laughs> other than the fact that he is—he's streaking clear on the bridle, and and the horse that's currently in second eventually fades into third is a horse who cost 150 grand and was second in a very good four-year-old Irish point. So there is a little bit of substance here, but he's. He's one hard hell. Have you seen a good bumper horse in England this season? Um, Queen's Gamble and Oliver yeah, Sherwood. Sherwood. Yeah, might be the very best. good mare. Um, and she'd be very, she'd be playing now, getting the seven pound allowance, wouldn't she? Mm. Um, but no, another race at the festival, probably dominated by the Irish. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly, mm. we'll see. But it's not a standout contender, but he might be one of them. We'll know a bit more come the come the, the point point that he, won, he won a point to point in Northern Ireland, mm. and it's one of those ones you look at the result. I don't think the second has won, but but third, fourth, fifth, they've all uh, either won or run really well in in a variety of races. So clearly, you know, it was it uh, the, the the form is working out really well, and he looks a really an, another good prospect mm -hmm. for Simon Minear and Isaac Swade. Uh, trained in Ireland. I mean, they really do have a very powerful squad now with, with Willie Mullins, with um, El Fabiolo and Pere Pass and, and so many more. And the, the Crawford Nursery is supplying them with a steady stream of winners. Is that nursery idea something that, that you're trying to build up with the, the young horses? You talked about Midnight River. You're breaking him in as a three-year-old. And your sister-in-law, Grace, now is running the stud down the road with three stallions standing there. Is that something you're trying to, trying to achieve? Yeah, I suppose, you, you know, it's hard to get these form horses, um, really, um, especially the, the the best the best of them. Um, they're so expensive. But I mean, we've 
been very lucky, you know, we've had a bit of luck with the store horses coming mm. through and I think Midnight River was maybe like a 40 grand store. Uh, Grey Dawning was brought very well. Um, I suppose there is obviously the thing that there might just be no good at all. Yes. But also I think then it, the fact that they're untouched and you sort of can produce them through, um, you know, I think it's been lucky for us. Yeah, so if you, if you buy a store and he or she is not going to make a racehorse, if you've done them the right way, then there's probably a job for them oh, yeah. somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but first and foremost, you've got to hope they're fast <laughs> and you're going to exactly. make them. Um, but it's, yeah, we've done quite well with them, and um, you know, I think we've got good people buying them. Um, you know, Ryan Marn's done a great job. Um, we have a few off Brendan Bashford. Um, you know, good people with a good eye of a horse, and um, you're buying a blank canvas, I suppose, but you know, if the confirmation's right and everything's right, you can hopefully make them. Did, is Grey Dawning a horse that you think is a player for, for Cheltenham? Um, yeah, possibly. Um, we'd look um, probably towards the Albert Bartlett, um, but also has the option of entry as well. Um, he's had quite a busy busy time of it this year. Um, we have a nice little break now, and then we'll look, look into the spring for him. Okay, so it's not it's not absolutely certain that that would be his. No, no. I I, I would, you know, still I'd say Dan's discussed it with the owners, but um, he'll go now probably straight to Cheltenham or Aintree, one or the other. The the horse from last weekend I was really struck by was the mare Gallia de Litto. Uh, just looking at that division as well of novice chasers, it's not it doesn't it doesn't look particularly clear at the moment, does it? And I thought with with the with the mare's allowance, she could be. Yeah, quite a prospect. Yeah, for sure. We, you know, we've always thought she's quite good. Um, she actually bolted up for us first time up at Weatherby, um, uh, but she was great the other day at at, um, at Warwick. Jumps great. Loves soft ground. Likes quite a big gallop and track. Um, things didn't quite go to plan at Kempton for her, but um, I missed the second, which was an open ditch. Um, probably rider error really um, I'd sat a bit cold on her and then the shadows down the back at Kempton that day were really bad and she she come up at one of the shadows and scared herself and that was the end of her race um, but here you can see a yeah, good solid mare she's 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 like a gelding really um, she's got plenty of size and strength about her um, good tough horse and loves soft ground gallops all day so um, that was very important for her though because the conditions were right it was a grade two um, you know, important for her, and she got a big day, so it's good. And feed a horse trained by Paul Nichols as well, who, yeah. who is joining us on the, on the line now. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Nick. You know, sometimes I worry that I, I don't relax enough when, when I'm on holiday. You've been, you've been away for a week. Uh, how are you? How are you on the, on the beach? Can you chill out, or, or, or are you, as your mind whirring? <laughs> it must be quite difficult, mustn't it, to, to, to wind down a bit, in the middle of the season. Oh, of course it is. Of course, because you've got a busy business at home, lots of decisions to make. But don't go on a holiday to sit on a beach. I just enjoyed just relaxing ten days, and nothing better than planning um, races and looking for the racing calendar when you're in a nice climate. So, um, yes, yeah, good. We all need a little break at some stage. Um, it's good to be back. So you you feel you feel freshened up for the break and uh, planning that planning the next few weeks ahead. Uh, how's how's weather down there with you? Can you get all the horses out? Gallops okay. Yeah, normal thing, your weather gallops are normal, kept them all open, no problems with the exercise in the horses. Obviously a bit harder for the staff working at the moment. I think this morning it was about minus five, everything's frozen solid, but um, you know, as soon as we're racing, we're ready to go. Are you keeping the horses healthy this January? 
Yeah, they are. They're in good shape. Um, obviously, we've had plenty of winners in this January. Last year, I think through the middle of January, February, we weren't in a good place for whatever reason. They weren't in good shape. But from the start of the season, they've been really good. And I looked around with Clifford last night and he's happy with them all. They all look great. So looking forward to getting going. Uh, since we last spoke on this programme, you've had three grade one winners and a grade two winner. Might just be worth just keeping up to speed on how they're all getting on. Um, Brave man's game, is he, is he just ticking before you really start winding him up for the, for the Gold Cup? Yeah, as I said, I saw him last night. He looks great. Plenty of condition on him. His last year he used to go a little bit light after his runs. Um, he, he, yeah, he's been cantering every day, but ticking over you know, from tomorrow onwards. We'll start building him up and work back from Cheltenham, but he's in great shape. Very, very much looking forward to that challenge. Um, just looking back at that, King George, you've probably worn the tape out now or watched, the, watched it a million times. Is there anything that has struck you since then about the, about the performance as a whole? Well, I think that, you know, to be inconvenienced all the way around when um, he was continuing to be taken left-handed didn't exactly help him. But to be able to turn in the straight and pick up like he did and stay on strongly was really pleasing. He jumped well, he travelled well. Um, yeah, just just the performance that we wanted, and, and we knew he'd build on the Charlie Hall run because he was impressive that day when he wasn't really wound up at all. Um, I think we got plenty to come from him, yeah, and um, that needs to be. But um, you know, you're talking about running in a, Ch a Cheltenham Gold Cup; it's not going to be easy. So we we gone step by step this season. And he keeps answering, and hope we can get it right now for the next day. Why do you think that it's better not to give him a run between now and then? Uh, he, he doesn't need it. Um, you know, he, I think horses of people, you know, say about, oh, what his trainers these days don't run them enough. But I think horses are more effective, very fit and very fresh. If we give him a run somewhere, let's say we run him in the Denman chase, um, you're getting close then to, to Cheltenham. You don't need to give horses a run to get them at their best. We can do that at home. He doesn't need an awful lot of work. And he is just very good fresh, as you've seen in the, in the Charlie Hall and the King George. Why, why go in risk something going wrong we don't need to run him we don't need to get a race into him so we're trying to get him at his very very best and i think that's by going straight to chop uh, harry's sitting here alongside me you're nodding away harry when paul was saying very fit and very fresh something struck a chord with you there well yeah it does i mean i think what people don't realize as well is the point that you have to get them to get to that 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 peak fitness takes a long time and it's a long period of training to get them to you know, to peak like that, and it takes a lot out of them. So, you know, you have to let them recover, and then you can bring them back, bring them back, you know, again. But like, Paul's the best at it, isn't he? So, would you find them listening to what Harry was saying? Would you find them, Paul, with a horse like Brave Man's Game, for example, in a race like the King George, because it's, you know, a a, a race where they go a, a a good gallop all the way, and he's really putting everything in. Would you see him quiet then for a period after that? Would you? Would he? Would he be just a little bit, a little bit? more quiet than he had been beforehand. Now, funny enough, this year he's coming out of his races better than he did a year ago. That's because he's stronger, he's better. You know, I don't actually think horses necessarily get better, get more ability, but they actually get fitter because it gets stronger and more mature. And he's like that now. Last year he used to take a while to get over a race. He was bouncing straight after Kempton and we haven't had a, you know, an issue with him at all since then. It's just, he's actually very, very fresh. So it's just a sign of maturity, really. That's as much as anything, to be honest with you. So it's basically as their physique develops into full maturity, you're able then to, to work them harder and get them fitter. Yeah, exactly. Well, great example with him is 
you know our hill we we do a lot of work up there yeah. Haru, no, well i mean if you did three counties with him up the hill last year once or twice a week it would take him a week to get over that now he'll bound up there three times different class so that just tells us he's he's that much mature takes his work is at home better he takes his races better he's just a much more finished article you know and people say oh he didn't act at cheltenham when he's only been there once as a novice he's a fiver on he actually ran Well, it began with an F, whatever it was. He ran fine, fine. I think he was going to say. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting point that, isn't it, about when horses strengthen, what you can do, what what you can give them as a seven-year-old relative to what you can give them as a four-year-old. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you, you can't; those four-year-olds won't take the work that you can you can give a, a six-year-old that's more matured. And you know, and nowadays the the intensity that a race is, especially at the highest level. You jump out, you go a strong gallop all the way. It's so intense. It, it, you have to be super fit, and you know I think he definitely is. As horses more mature, you can train them harder, you can get them better, you can get them fitter. But if they're fit and strong, they recover quicker. Mm. You know, like Paul was just relating to Brave Man's game years ago. It would have taken him a week to get over doing three yeah. canters up the hill. And now he's and, and now he's good to go. Paul is back with us. Uh, Paul, I wanted to talk about your other Grade One winners over the over the Christmas period, um, particularly Hermes Allen. Is, is he is he a horse that's just a little bit different? Because Harry Cobden says he didn't really show much at home at all, but boy oh boy, he showed it on the race course, all right. Yeah, he, he he's improving all the time. Obviously on the racetrack, he doesn't show a lot at home. Up to the best horses, Harry Delia like that. Um, and he's just improving. Um, I think again, he's been an immature horse. He obviously was. We couldn't run him last spring. He was that backward. Um, and he just keeps on surprising us. Um, he's obviously got a huge talent. Um, that's what like it's what it's what what matters on the race course is is really is what means most to us. And he's he's got it. Um, is he is he the best chance you've had of, of winning a, a Cheltenham Festival novice hurdle in in quite some time? Yeah, he probably is. His favourite. He's he's going to have every chance. You know, it's going to be a big challenge from Ireland and one two from this country but I, I'd say you know on his two runs to three runs this year he's got a great chance and one of our you know uh, leading hopes and also you managed to get get a hold of him one of the, the a couple of these very good horses from the, <coughs> the the Irish point to point field you've actually managed to get your mitts on them which has been difficult the last few years how's that happened well he wasn't cheap was he you know you've got to start dipping in and, and, and paying plenty of money for them and um you know, you can buy any number, but we've obviously got lucky with him and several others this year. Um, he, yeah, he's a very nice horse. It was instigated by John Hales. I think Aidan Murphy bought it for him. And um, to start with, um, you know, you didn't know quite what we had, but, you know, he's obviously a very good horse and we're very lucky to have him. And I'm lucky now I've got some owners that are, you know, going to Ireland or the sales and buying these type of horses, really. So it's, it's exciting. I mean, there's a lot of people with deep pockets, a lot of people who are prepared to spend a lot of money on, on, on these good horses. To what extent is the preparedness the key? You know, actually being there ready when the horse crosses the line in that point to point, say, yeah, bang, we're going to go. Well, yeah, you've got to be ready because the, the opposition to buy them is tough. But I, I think the biggest thing of all with these horses is I've been learning more and more patience with them. I think if I'd have ran him last spring, I might have, not be where we are now and I think the thing is the owner's got to be on board with you you have to give them time and be patient with them and hopefully they'll learn when raw we're not always going to be lucky you you can spend any amount of money it doesn't always work we all know that but um you, you do need the right ammunition to be able to run in these better races uh, how's Tamura's doing since the Tolworth hurdle 
Yeah, he's great. Again, saw him last night. Looks great. Came out of the race well. I'm very pleased with him. You know, he's getting better all the time. We can sharpen his jumping up. He does jump up, basically. But in that deep granite sand and up over those last two, you're never going to jump particularly brilliant. Harry wasn't going to be far and asking big questions of him in that ground. And, you know, when he jumped the last, he gave him a squeeze and he picked up nicely. So, yeah, he's he's an improving horse. Is he is he improving fast enough to be a to be a big player in a in a, a serious Cheltenham race? Do you think? Without a shadow of doubt, you know you keep on winning it. He's very much in the mould of Nolan and Alfrock, which we won the Supreme with, and he's probably a staying national horse. They were good enough to win the race. He's not unlike those those two horses in his way. I think we can improve him. Um, he's in the mix. You know, obviously a good division, but he's he's definitely in the mix. And Paul, last weekend when you were away, Pig Dory won the Sylvianarco Conti at Kempton in, in devastatingly impressive fashion. A lot of horses just couldn't lift a leg in the ground last weekend, but he certainly could, and he, and he, was, he was very, very good. How, how do you think he'd have run in the King George if you'd run him in that? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. We might know next year because we might have to run him in the King George. But he's an improving horse. He's always been a big backward horse. And, you know, as we were talking about Bradman's game, sometimes these horses take time to mature and... He's got there now. He, he, his breathing's good, which has been a little bit of an issue. We've got that sorted now. He jumps really assured and he keeps galloping. So, yeah, he's an impressive horse too, you know. He's going the right way. What are you going to do with him? Well, you go to Ascot next. Um, the Ascot chase in the middle of um, February. That looks an ideal. And then after that, we'll have to see how that goes. Whether we, He's got an entry for the Ryanair. So he's you know, got quite a shortest price. Um, you know, he's been very effective on flat tracks up to now, but that's basically because we've pretty well gone on those sort of tracks. is um, another option. So we'll get ask it out of the way and make a decision. But, you know, he's definitely in the mix in the Ryanair without a shadow doubt. Um, and, Paul, next weekend, trials day at, at Cheltenham. Uh, you, you told me yesterday, Frodon will go to the Cotswold. Uh, Affidil to go for the JCB Triumph Hurdle trial. What else are you going to run next weekend? Yeah, lots to probably run. We'll enter tomorrow. Jelena Bella's actually going to run in the Cleve Hurdle. Um, he he didn't jump particularly well. Kempton was listening to what Harry was saying about his mare that day, jumping the shadows. He did the same twice and ended up on the floor, going actually well enough. But I just think a run over hurdles might just uh, uh, boost his confidence a little bit. And who knows uh, if he ran well, we could even look at a stairs hurdle with him. If not, we'll switch back chasing. Um, and I think either Stay Away Faye or Henry II will run in the uh, Ballymore Novice Hurdle. So we've got plenty to run next weekend. Uh, that's interesting, Jolino Bella for the Stay Hurdle. Did you just have a look at that division and think, hmm, he's going to be competitive there as a, as, a, as, a, as a horse still on the up? Well, he might be. Saturday, was a Cleaver Hurdle would tell us. I think we ran very well. Um, it's an option, isn't it? I mean... I haven't given up, up on him as a chaser who's beaten before Kempton, and I think if he hadn't felt, he'd have gone very well. But, you know, we just thought of confidence booster. Let's have a look at that division and see how we go. And years and years ago, famously, we went to the Cleaver Hurdle with Big Bucks, and look, look what happened afterwards. I'm not comparing him with Big Bucks, but it's a route that you can go down. I see what I see where you're going there. Um, how far ahead are you in the Trainers' Championship, Paul, roughly? You know, ask Harry, you probably know more than me. <laughs> 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 I don't know. Plenty enough at the moment. I actually think poor old Dan's been pulling his hair out the last 10 days because we were very quiet and he looked like he was going to have a lot of chances. So, um, yeah, it's all to play for, isn't it? It's like, I don't know, it's something like 350,000. And if you look at it, that's one race. If Dan won the Gold Cup with the Protect Crap, that would make all things even. So it's a big spring. They're doing well. I think we've got a great team that will make a lot of interest. Um, I, I don't... 
I don't know whether you like being miles clear of your nearest rival or whether it's good for you to have to have somebody like Dan who was your protege for so long breathing down your neck is it what does it what does it feel like having him in second and is your most potent threat I'm very proud of what they've achieved but Hannah and Dara are doing a fantastic job and um, I always knew it was going to be the case and as Harry said earlier I can really read Dan's mind and I, I, he, he won't give up to the very last day of the season I can he thinks he's got half a chance of beating us so um, yeah it's, it's good um, you know it's, it's not getting good beat by them every weekend or from time to time and you know we equally like from one weekend to the next but you know they've done a fantastic job I'm very proud of both of them Uh, Cornelius and Harry and uh, I are now joined by Laura Pearson, who made uh, a stunning start to her career as an apprentice rider before injury intervened. But this week, you're back. I'm back. And how do you feel? Brilliant, yeah. It's good to be back. I bet it is. It's been quite a long road. I mean, it seems like yesterday to me that you were riding, but actually it's been, what, six six months or so? Six, six seven months, months? Yeah, six months altogether. The f first three months were hard. I, um, I fought the process a lot, but... As I said on an interview the other day, it just once you realise that this is the position that you're in, mm. make the most of what you have. Okay, so what happened and when? So the 28th of July, so my saddle slipped, yeah. um, slipped round, I fell into the horse's legs next to me. So I fractured my C7. Which is high up, isn't it? Uh, it's like the bottom of your neck. Yeah. Um, so yeah, awfully concussed for a very long time. <laughs> Did you know straight away that it was bad? Um, well, apparently I was making jokes in the ambulance, so <laughs> I don't know, I can't really remember if I'm honest. I remember it took me a few days to get the race back and the day back. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the saddle slipping um, and going, but then I don't remember anything else other than waking up in the hospital. And then you knew you'd had a, a neck fracture yeah. and the concussion was bad. So mm -hmm. how were you in yourself for those next next few weeks? Were you pretty disorientated I mean I thought I was great I was already <laughs> had in the diary as well I'll be back on the racetrack in a month once I get this neck race off don't need it for six weeks um, but everybody else around me could see it obviously and looking back on it now you see how disorientated you actually were when you thought you were fine um, so yeah I, I looked at your Twitter feed just around about the time of the of the fall and the diagnosis came out and you just put above it we go again with a big strength <laughs> strength promotion I'm thinking what, what, what was she thinking at that, at that, at that moment exactly um, just keep going I've, I've, I've had a few knockbacks the last three years and um, it was just another one to add to the pile I guess it's interesting you say that because you know from the outside it's been quite a quite a strong start good good success story mm -hmm. Tell me why it's been a bit more more complicated than that, if it has. So m my racing career, I, I I can't fault. It's been it's been brilliant and it's something that I threw everything into. But so in 2020, when I was 19, I lost my dad quite mm -hmm. quickly to pancreatic cancer, um, and then in 2021, I lost my boyfriend to a brain tumor. So in 2022, I then fractured my neck. Oh, here we go, <laughs> another one. But I've done my three now, so hopefully that's all over. Um, but look, I. I I used those bad points and put it all into my career um, 
and whether or not it's the right that's the right way of dealing with those kind of losses I don't know but it's the way that I have and it's helped me and I've tried to turn it into good anyway dad was huge in your in your career wasn't he as well and as as well as obviously in in your life because was it not him point to pointing that that star started you off it was yeah dad dad was sounds cringy but my hero and he always will be he's, he's he was the most important or is still the most important person um and yeah he he, he taught me and my sister f from a very young age he was probably a lot harder than <laughs> most parents would be but i thank him for it now because i feel like it's made me a better person and so he was a he was a great rider mm. good teacher mm. and <laughs> hard school yeah old school he was old school so tell me a little bit about about growing up and and, and you and your sister so we grew up in france mm -hmm. so i moved to france when i was three um what, what took you guys to france i don't know it's, oh, it's going to come out of, they were meant to be arrested or something at some point then they ran away from the country but no um so we I think it was just a fresh start. I don't know if it was mum or dad's idea. Mm -hmm. um, so we spent seven years in there, which, again, at the time I hated. I was like, this is awful. I want to go back to England where there's Galaxy and Aero and nice chocolates instead of these horrible French chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I look back on it now and I can't thank them enough because I grew up on a farm. I probably thought I was a little boy for most of it. Um, and I just had a real childhood, you know. Was it that kind of, you know, you, you see sort of scenes of idyllic rural France in films. Was it, was it like that? It was, yeah. So we were in the Limousin and um, surrounded by sheep and grew up on a farm. Something out of a storybook, really. <laughs> so really a, a gorgeous childhood mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. So when did you come back to England? And when you did come back <laughs> to England, did you actually want to come back? Um, I did, yeah. I was really excited. So I came back, moved back when I was 10. Um, so I had to teach myself how to read and write English in that summer holidays mm -hmm. that we decided we were coming back. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was really excited. How's your French now? Is your French still really good? Um, it's there. When we go skiing, it's, it's in the back of my head. It's, I can understand them, but when I speak French, I seem to just speak English with a French accent. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> quite click. Um, but, yeah, I can understand them like they're speaking English to me. But you had to you had to teach yourself English and and reassimilate. Tell me so. Tell me about life when you came back. How was it different? Um, it was a big cultural change. Um, I think I threw myself into horses. Horses are always my safe spot. Um, I I have had a very naughty pony with my first pony. I see. I look back on it now. I think Dad probably was trying to put me off. It was an unbroken colt um, that I had to break in myself. So I had to learn on that, to ride on that as well. Um, so when I came back to England and got myself a nice pony, got into a, like a bit of venting and pony mm -hmm. racing. And so then the, the idea of becoming a jockey was starting to, starting to form, or had it always been there, even from when you were little and being taught at three, four, five? I remember watching videos of my dad, like point to point in an Arab racing. I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. It was a mixture of horses and sports and competitiveness. So. It was exactly <laughs> what I was all about at the time. So could there could there have been another sporting career? Uh, could there still be another sporting career? I don't know. I think I've lost all aspects of that. But I was big into my cricket when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Cricket was probably my main one. And cricket I in France? 
No, no, no. In England. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to say that 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 would have that would have been pretty unusual. And so you you set off on the trail to to being an apprentice. Mm -hmm. When did things start to start to take shape? Start to click for you? When did you feel like you belonged? What in in, in the racing in, yeah. industry? Um, it was probably about five months after my dad passed away. Mm -hmm. um, I started at Mr. Clover's, Tom Clover's. Um, and I had a ride at Newcastle one evening in the half seven, I believe it was, on a filly called Herringsar um, for the champagne poppers that just started all off. And my agent, my current agent now, Stephen Croft, rang me and he was like, yeah, I'll take you on my books. Um, and it's been flying ever since. He's obviously a big support to you, isn't he? Um, he's a he's a, a wholehearted guy and, and has, has, has backed you. How important has he been for your for your career and your development? Brilliant. He's he taught me not he's not just an agent to me, he, like he'd go through races with me. He's almost like a jockey coach. Mm -hmm. Um like just small tactics, just he's brilliant. I I mean I'd be lost without him. And did you believe early on that you, you had something, that you had a you're wrinkling your nose <laughs> why? Um I don't know, I don't wanna sound too confident. <laughs> But you've you've clearly got a, a talent. Everyone saw it. But were you were you always that very comfortable as a jockey on a horse in a race? I'm probably a lot safer on a horse than I am on my own two feet. Yeah. <laughs> what makes you not safe on your on your own two feet? <laughs> oh, you don't want to know. <laughs> okay. I won't ask. But um, in terms of the in terms of the riding career, you you made it as I say a very bright start as an apprentice and as you say on the horse everything was going well off the horse things weren't going quite so well for you um, could you get yourself mentally in the right place to do what you were supposed to be doing in a race um, yeah racing was like like a breath of fresh air because I could just concentrate on that mm -hmm. and there wasn't anything else um, so yeah race, racing was like my my saving grace could I say and the break that you've had this this six months has it has it changed you at all massively yeah I as I said I, f I threw everything into the racing and when that was taken away I just didn't know what to do didn't know what to do with myself and it made me finally actually speak to someone about it all and go across it in a better way in a more healthier way I guess some could say um, so the IJF were brilliant for that. So mentally and physically, the IJF did loads for me. And your your physical determination to get back. You said something I've read in the paper today about that you nearly got a room in Peter Sullivan <laughs> House. Yeah, I think they, they end up kicking me out. If I'm honest, I was in there for most of the hours of the day, just mooching around eating all their fruit that they left out. Um, yeah, I was, I've become their hermit. <laughs> So d did you feel that the, the place itself was as much of a, a haven for you to put you in the right place, as you say, mentally, as it was to heal you, to heal your body? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I've come very, I've probably got some kind of detachment problem from it now, <laughs> if I'm honest, but when you spend some, like, six months in the same place every day for all day, I'm, I'm sure you get that, but, yeah, no, I, they do a lot for us. So... Clearly, nobody wants a serious injury. You've had serious injuries, Harry, riding uh, you know, 
all, all through your career. Nobody wants to be to be injured badly. Nobody wants a spell on the sidelines. When you look back on it, though, in the fullness of time, do you think this period actually could have been a, a blessing in some respects? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it is, and I'd love to turn around and say and say no, but as a as a 21-year-old that hasn't done anything else with her life yet, like nothing. Racing has just always been the since I was about 14. Mm -hmm. um, it just made me breathe, and it's something that I go back to. Dad, Dad said to me on his last few days, he said, "Don't forget to live," and that was from a man that I saw that just worked every single day, and he's the most hardworking man that I think I'll ever see. Um, so for him to say that, and I probably didn't take that into account until these six months came. So. To me those words really resonating with you mm. that you've got to live and you've got to enjoy it mm. you were saying earlier on the importance of enjoying what you're doing and relatively few people riding top class sport uh, playing top class sport are able to do that it's it's a yeah. it's a it's a fascinating thing it is um like laura's expression to there is you know her you can see her, her love for the sport, her love for the horses, and that's what drives her on. But you've got to enjoy it and just be yourself. It's, you get a lot of, I think, especially now with social media, you get a lot of opinions and, you know, why is he doing that or why is she doing this? Do that, you know. But actually, just be yourself. And if you can be yourself and just live it and just enjoy it, I mean, that's what it's all about. You've been, you've been champion jockey, part of an exclusive club. You're part of an, an exclusive club, Laura, that hopefully will become much, much less exclusive, which is that you're one of only a handful of female riders to have won a race at, at Royal Ascot. And, and like that, right off, the, right off the beginning of your career as well. What was, that, what was that moment like? It was incredible, but do you know what? When I came in to the weighing room, I went, right, next year I've got to get two then, otherwise I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> and... It turned out the following year I didn't ride at the meeting and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I was like, oh my God, I've gone backwards, this is it, it's all over. Um, but yeah, I think it just, it taught me to just really enjoy those moments because you never know, it could be your last one. Like I could have become paralysed after that fall and I never got a chance to ride a horse again. Mm. So I think it, it, I'll definitely come back into this season with a different mindset from it. I mean, it's quite something, isn't it, to to walk into that Ascot winners' enclosure? And I know it was the COVID year, and it was a wasn't the kind of crowd that you might have wanted. But to just to do that must have been pretty awe-inspiring. Oh, it was yeah, it was incredible, and and to do it for for Mr. Lockdown and Dave is even more of a fairy tale for me because he's picked my career up and he's done it again. My first ride back was for him um, about six nine six times now. He just scoops me back up again when I go quiet, so yeah, it was really, it was brilliant. And you, you paid tribute to Hayley Turner and particularly to Holly Doyle after that. Um, it sounds from what you say as though Holly's been very important for you, n not just as a, as a role model, but, but practically as well. Tell me a bit more about that. Um, yeah, she's, re she's really good. I, I know when I was working for, for Mr Evans, Holly had obviously started out there before, so mm -hmm. I could speak to her on a on a personal level um, with all those aspects, and she's always there to help. And you couldn't meet a kinder person than than Holly. And so, if you if you're just sort of feeling that you're not 
quite sure about something, would she be one of the first people you would you you would ask? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's obviously it's obviously working pretty well. <laughs> you mentioned Mr. Evans. That's Dave Evans. Yeah. Tom Clover and Newmarket. Yeah. They're quite quite different quite different personalities. <laughs> and Rafe on Dave the top. Dave Evans right. to Tom Clover. <laughs> and then a, and then a bit of Rafe Beckett on the top. Yeah. Um, how is it down at Rafe's now? It's brilliant. Yeah, it's a completely different different thing, and I. I really enjoyed looking at different, going to different places um, because Dave Evans taught me how to work hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have to graft and you're there. And I'd send any person coming out the racing school there because if, if you still love it when you're there and you have to work hard, then you'll be in the industry for the rest of your life. Um, Tom Clover was brilliant for my career. He, he set me off. He, he spent a lot of time with me did a lot of fractions work with me on the gallops at home um, and Mr Beckett is just the class of horses and how, how intelligent he is, is it's just I'm so fortunate to work with a man mm. like him. So how long have you been at, at Raves? Uh, we come out to a year now. Okay. Or just over a year, sorry. And so it's only now really that you're starting to, because of your injury, you're starting to get in and, and sit on some of those really mm. classy horses. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, Mr. Clover had had good horses in this in his yard, but then you go to Rafe's and you sit on all these group horses, like like they're just normal horses to mm -hmm. him, and oh, it's incredible. And so, are you setting targets or not? I try not to because then, if I don't reach them, I'm not a very happy person to be around. <laughs> um, so I. I I think I'm just going to try and go with the flow this season instead of the big goals that I set myself before. You're quite hard on yourself, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know about that. I think we all are. Um, can you marry that with with being at, at ease when you're not on a horse? Can you marry being hard on yourself and driving yourself and pushing yourself forward with with that newfound ability to be a bit more centred? Mm. I think so, yeah. I think so, we'll see. I'll let you know next year. <laughs> <laughs> see if I pulled my hair out or not. And not far off losing your claim either? No. Is that, how do you feel about that? Do you feel, do you feel good about how close you are to it and is it, is it something that's driving you forward? I do, yeah. I, I, this time last year I was a little bit stressing about people only using me for my claim still or are they actually using me for me and the only person that I could say hands down was using me for me was Dave Lockman. Um but now I'd I'd strongly say every trainer I have around me is <laughs> using me for me and not my claim so yeah I'm, I'm, I'm happy to lose it now. And as you say it's been tough but you feel good and you feel strong. Yeah. pleased to say for the first time uh, on Luck on Sunday, I'm joined by a man who, as I said, if you were with me at the beginning of the show, flew across racing skyline like a very loud and bright comet for a decade, the decade around which he was most celebrated as being the owner of Denman. He fell in love with the game, out of love with the game, in love with the game, out of love with the game again. He once said that I am a gambler through and through. If I was down to my last thousand, I would bet my carpet on it as long as it was even money. He is, of course, Harry Finlay. 
Welcome. Cheers, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you at the moment? In love, out of love, well, yeah, or I ambivalent? I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I, I think you've, once you fall in love with racing and betting, you're always going to be in love with it. I fell out of love with what what happened to me and stuff like that. But I've never, never. You uh, fell out of love with some of the people. Well, not some of the. You know, it just everything that happened with it. But I've never. I mean, I love gambling. I I, I, I adore all, all forms of gambling and. Uh, and, and racing is always going to be a, be, be a part of it, especially I'm a dog man. And when you say about the 10 years, it was my mum and Paul Barber's fault, really. Um, two great people. But uh, I never really planned to own horses. But despite that, I'd always be a racing fan. I'd always love racing and watching the, the good horses. I got a lot of stick last year for saying how good Shiskin was, the great Shiskin against the Nergami. But I was right. It was, that's, got, that's why Shiskin's gone. That's what, Shiskin paid the price for that war. If you get these absolute tip-top horses or tip-top greyhounds. Sometimes I leave a mark when you have a war. And um, that's what happened, I believe, to Shiskin that day. And I thought that was a, a great horse race. And um, there's never been a time when I wouldn't have enjoyed watching something like that. And was that the same for all time? But it was the dogs that came first, wasn't it? Yeah, the dogs, I mean, I mean, for me, the dogs are, you know, you talk about owning dogs. I mean, I've big fella thanks video gone on Twitter this week and I've said it was the best moment of my life. And, People have said, oh, what about Denman? But I mean, there's a lot of pressure with, horse, with horses and I've never really, I've never wanted to own a horse. I, I spent 20 years trying to win a trial stake to get to Clonmel and uh, as a youngster and I never ever once wanted to, wanted to own horses and the pressure that come with it. Whereas the dogs, I mean, I had Big Fella Thanks as a pet in my house till he was, till he was 13 and I'm a dog person, but I understand people who are, mm -hmm. more, you know, I, I wasn't brought up around horses. We're going to talk quite a bit about, about the, the art of gambling, if you like, but I, I wanted to, to take you right back to talk about why betting on greyhound racing in particular really made you tick. Because you've talked about it before, there is something specific about the way you bet on dogs that you think could be quite important for everyone who ever bets on anything. Well, yeah, I suppose you're right. You see, greyhound racing was the only sport that was, in, that was actually invented for betting purposes in the early 1920s in America. Um, they were chasing jackrabbits and um, they wanted to find a way to build tracks so they could bet on it as a racing thing where can you use a, an artificial hair and the tracks they built were absolutely inch perfect the straights the bends they're still there now in Florida you, you, they don't race anymore but the, the tracks are still there and it, 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 it does suit gambling I mean as Jamie Hart the tote says it's a much easier sell to sell the dogs than it is the horses there's a lot with the horses you have to learn a lot and know a lot and I've always said that if you're a youngster going greyhound racing three Saturday nights on the trot, you become a judge. You know who's going to lead, you know who's going to finish. And it, I always have thought that greyhound racing is the most exciting thing to bet on for sure. Mm. Like you say about my last thousand. If I had to have my last thousand on red or black, I'd much rather have it on a red dog or a blue dog. One or two in a 850 metres, you know, ideally at Wembley. 852 two dog race uh, at Wembley th th than red or black. And I think a lot of gamblers are like that. But um, the most exciting thing now, of course, is that um, I believe you guys and Cornelius, I've actually got older Cornelius in boots and give him a you know, telling off and I'll give you a telling off now. I don't believe that racing has really realised what Alex Frost has done and what the Tote have done in the, last, in the last two years. And we keep talking about the Australian model, the French model. Already, UK Tote is offering better prices race by race, win and place on horses than any other Tote in the world. They're also partners with every other country in the world. You can bet on Hong Kong racing on your tote.co.uk account and get a 10% bonus. 
Now, it's hard enough to get on Hong Kong racing at all at the Hong Kong tote prices, which are much fairer than most countries. But on UK tote group, you get plus 10%. You get bonuses on everything. The, what they've done is levelled the field for punters. And, just not, and not enough people realise. I see how much money goes in the jackpots and the, you can follow them. They've mm. all the, you can follow how much goes on every horse and you know who's, who's playing. I wrote in my book about the, the rebate of the shark getting the massive re deals. Well, when, when Alex Frost and his team of philanthropists, because you, you can't buy the tote now, Elon Musk can't buy the tote, Tony Bloom can't buy the tote, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one can. It's not for sale. The, the money they pay, they paid a, over 110 million it was to buy the tote for racing, for us, you know, and they, they can't sell it. Mm. And, and, and the most important thing is they value, they understand the relationship and the importance. Going back to you and Greyhound Racing, why Greyhound Racing has suffered is because the promoters and the greed within the sport was disconnected from punters. And, and I think we're going to later talk about the Gambling Commission and how, how dangerous what's going on with them is because you need, you need that unity. And Alex Frost and the UK Tote understand that. And they are, they are offering value that, you, 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 you know, that is unprecedented anywhere else, right. and they're already partners. All right, so, so Harry, what, where, did, where did this connection come from? Because you've, you've taken us down the, the road of the tote. Where, where did your, your enthusiasm for this spring from? What, what's, what's prompted this, this particular uh, chapter, well, you, in you, your, you, chapter in your life? Well, you, you, you've, you've thrown me a curveball with um, mentioning Greyhound straight away, because that was the last thing I expected. But <laughs> funny enough, Funny enough, we've even bought a track, uh, myself and 20 other shareholders, including Mark Johnson. The trainer? Yeah. The former trainer? Former trainer. I think he's retired to, 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 <laughs> to, to be more hands-on at Lyfford, to be honest with you, from Stone. But um, Nick Alexander, another trainer. Yeah. Paul Byrne. So a consortium of you have oh, got yeah. together yep. to, uh, buy a, to buy a, a dog track, a dog and, track in Ireland. Uh, yes. And you, you asked me where the connection comes from. Well, I heard that two years ago, as people know, what ruined me was Coventry... Uh, Dogs. Trusting people, yeah, leasing it and not buying it. Because if I'd have worked with Jamie Hart, who now works for the Tote, mm -hmm. Coventry would be 101 to have the Greyhound Derby now. It'd be going all around the world. As Jamie said to me last night, it'd be, it'd be in Brazil, and it would be. But unfortunately, Nick was working with Ralph Topping. Uh, Jamie was working with Ralph Topping at Hills. They left Hills, and I was left with no, no one to back me and mm -hmm. lease, and I got shafted anyway. Long story. But incredibly, I heard that. I heard that Jamie White, Jamie Hart and Alex Frost were trying to do low-margin dogs. That's the problem with grand racing. 33% takeout tote in, in England. It's gone up from five and six. We, we were speaking about the dogs in the 20s. Five or 6% takeout. They either had 5% like the Cascade schools right. or 1% a runner. And for five decades, greyhound racing thrived in three continents. Second biggest spectator sport in the world, turning over the equivalent of 17 billion a year. Uh -huh. Then it went up from six to 10 to 15, 16 when I got involved in the early 70s, and now it's gone up to 33. It's worthless. And week on week, night on night on Racing Post TV, they all mo no one says what they are, no one ever talks about the gambling and about percentages, but that's where Greyhound Racing went wrong. And when I heard what Alex and, when I knew what Alex and Jamie Hart were trying to do, in Ireland, you know, in in England, they were trying to do a thing. Yeah. It's Greyhound Derby, and right. they were getting stopped. And I, I and I, I've and I've always wanted to do that since I was sixteen. Is to to, to have a low margin because I believe if you bring the bring the takeout down, Greyhound Racing will thrive again. So, if you're going to deal with anyone in business, what one thing I've learned is to go to the top man. So I went to Alex Frost's front door, 
knocked on his house. This was at the start of COVID. Uh -huh. You weren't even supposed to shake hands, but we did. And I said to him, if you're going to do low margin dogs, will you always keep to 10%? You'll never go more than 10% take out on greyhounds if I buy this track. He said, yes. And this is the most crucial thing, Nick. This is what can save greyhound racing. Mm -hmm. I said to Alex, I said, will you ever have any rebate? Will you give any, ever give any rebate to big punters or anything? He said, never. Never any rebate. And there is the answer. That's the answer to everything. Low takeout, no rebate. And that is why when you see Lifford and you see the sand tote plus on the sand and you see the Galway plate and everything, Alex will know, I haven't spoken to him about this, but I know his plan will be to, when Lifford shows, we have, we've got a 10% model in, in, in our, at Lifford yeah. at our track. So on course and on tote.uk, we just take 10% out and give the punters 90 back. Instead of, in Ireland, it's 25 75. So I didn't need to ask you, Harry, what you were doing at the moment, because you've, you've just comprehensively answered. Is this, are, you, are you putting all your heart, soul and energy into this project at the moment? Oh, is, that I, your, I, is that your baby? Nick, Nick for, when, when the book came out five years ago, mainly it was the football uh, journalists who wanted to speak to me. It was the top football journalists yeah. at the time. Isn't it? All they wanted to know about was Tony Bloom and Matthew Benham. Yep. And I said... They said Brighton, and I would, at the time I said Brighton won't get relegated. Brighton were like six to four to go down, and I said they're a million to one to go down. And um, I said they'll never go down. I said, and funnily enough, I said in three or four years' time, I said Brentford won't be far behind them, talking about Lizard and Benham. And they laughed at me. They laughed at me. Well, I'll tell you now, I believe in three or four years' time, the Irish horse tote will be the talk of the rest of the world because of that one simple reason. There's no rebate. What I wrote about in my book, a whole chapter about the shark, getting 20%, getting like doing deals with Betfred. Betfred and Phil Sears were giving more and more rebate to the biggest players, making sure nobody else got any rebate. And the man in the street was a million. It was a million. And I played the jackpot when Betfred was running it. I played the jackpot literally twice a year. Literally twice a year. And um, now, five six times a week only small stakes because they put in five they put in 10 grand every day for the jackpot so if it's one if it's one if it's all these small fields in the week i shouldn't be telling everyone this but <laughs> there's so much value yeah. because they put up 10 grand and there's only six grand goes in and and there's three odds on shot some days in the winter yesterday scoop six that cost me 80 across I've, I've done the perm but it cost us 80 grand the, 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 here's, 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 what, here's what fascinates me this is a great evangelical pitch on behalf of fundamentally not just Ireland but 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 the the theory of parimutuel wagering oh. and I know it's been a big part of your life I remember the days of the scoop six and and what have you but you're also somebody who says I'm a gambler I was born a gambler yeah, this, absolutely. You know, tell me why you believe that that parimutuel wagering can become much more culturally, culturally relevant in, say, in the UK? Can well, it become more culturally relevant in the UK? Culturally relevant? You've hit the nail on the head, Nick. This is why... Because it hasn't been for a generation. I, well, I, I, more. more. And, and this is why I think Ireland is the untapped... We're, mm. we're in the right colour studio. Mm. Uh, this is why I, I think Ireland's untapped, because I have travelled. I mean, I've been to every dog track in America, Australia, and, and, and Britain and everything. But... I remember the first day I went to Ireland to Clonmel when I was 19 and I remember spending a day in Tralee and going to the sales and I remember staying in the Earl of Desmond and waking up and walking around the Gaelic football pitch and seeing people walking the dogs and I knew then that culturally Ireland is unique. Ireland is unique. 
certainly as far as horses and grounds are concerned. Mm. And when we bought Lifford, funny enough, I was going down to see the Magnet. I was on the verge of saying, because I had two people who wanted to buy it wholesale, for, you know, but I, it, was, it was Gordon Elliott and Jamie Codd who I had breakfast with, Frank Gordon's, and Gordon said, you know, so-and-so will have a share, we'll have a share, buy it yourself. And I did, I sent Paul Byrne, we went, I went down and Paul Byrne was the first one to look at it and we did, we bought it ourselves and rung up people like Mark Johnson and other people and said how cheap it was, and, but they all believed in the tote idea. Mm -hmm. so anyone with a mathematical bent understands that low margin is the answer. Nick, Australia is thriving. You all, you all talk about Australia in 14%, which it is 14%. They're taking 19 million every Saturday night at Wentworth. And yet, nine years ago at Wentworth, there's big chains outside and Grand Racing was banned in New South Wales and the sport was finished. Now they've got eight races for a million dollars. Eight million dollar races. There's more owners in greyhounds in Australia than there is. The level from horses ownership syndicates and dogs is more or less which. All right, but how? People at home will be thinking, how? I'll tell them, don't how, worry. <laughs> how does it become significant enough here in the UK to yeah. be able to make a difference to our listing financial position? Exactly. Let me explain to you now. Already I've told you before we come on air that betting win and place, the way Alex has done it with. Alex has got. Uh, we talked about. Well, they keep coming up, Benham and Lizard. Alex has got mathematicians <laughs> out of control who have managed to, best I've ever met, who have managed to, because of Tote Plus and how the markets work, all, they, all their, their total pursuit is to try and get better value for punters. Because like me, they believe that's the way forward. 